0: The head of the Vatican's Pontifical Academy for Life offers what seemed to be an endorsement of assisted suicide, but later clarified his comments. Why the confusion? And British Parliament issues a report on the state of freedom of speech in communist China and the situation of jailed democracy advocate Jimmy Lai. But is the world listening? President Emeritus of the Acton Institute, Father Robert Sirico, is here with analysis and to talk about his new film. The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's extraordinary struggle for freedom. And the Pope is now allowing lay people to vote at the upcoming synod of bishops. What does this precedent mean? The papal posse, Father Gerald Murray and Robert Royal, are here to react. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's get started. The prefect of the Vatican's Pontifical Academy for Life, Archbishop Vincenzo Paglia, made headlines this week for seeming to suggest that euthanasia, assisted suicide, was morally permissible, despite clear church teaching to the contrary. He and the Vatican later attempted to clarify his original statement. And in the wake of China's appointment of a Catholic bishop without Vatican approval, the UK Parliament has issued a report on freedom in Communist China, as well as the current situation of jailed Catholic dissident and democracy advocate Jimmy Lai. Here with analysis of all of this and more is the President Emeritus of the Acton Institute, and executive producer of the amazing documentary The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's extraordinary struggle for freedom. Please welcome back to the program our friend, Father Robert Sirico. Father, thanks for being with us. I want to start with with those controversial statements made by Archbishop Paglia, the president of the Pontifical Academy for Life. Uh, In a speech, he suggested to a—it was an international journalism festival. He suggested that medically-assisted suicide was, quote, feasible— And then he went on to say that, quote, "...personally, I would not practice suicide assistance, but I understand that the legal mediation may be the greatest common good concretely possible under the conditions we find ourselves in." End quote. He continued that the church is not a dispenser of truth pills when it comes to engaging with a pluralistic society on challenging moral issues of the day, And then he said, theological thought evolves in history, in dialogue with the magisterium and the experience of the people of God in a dynamic mutual enrichment between believers and non-believers. There is a relationship of mutual learning, end quote. Father Sirico, your reaction, first to Paglia's statements, and uh, how is this coming from the president of the Pontifical Academy for Life?
1: Well, uh, Archbishop Paglia is um, kind of confused here. First of all, the church is a dispenser of truth pills. I don't like that phraseology. I mean, Newman said that the church is the teller of the truth. Uh, And the confusion, Mm -hmm. I think, that's at the base of uh, Archbishop Paglia's uh, assertions here is that He is seeing the church as a part of this negotiation, a kind of political process. There's Mm. a determination, there's an obligation of Catholic politicians and legislators to be involved in those kinds of negotiations. But that's not the role of the church. What the church has to do is serenely proclaim the truth of the dignity of the human person who ought never to have his or her life uh, taken from him or her. And I think that is the confusion. And then the other thing uh, that happens toward the end of that statement is that there's almost a slippage. It's not just, well, we can't do anything about it and we'll just make the best of it. Then he's talking about this mutual learning. Is there something we're Mm -hmm. gonna learn about the human person that allows for euthanasia to be practiced. Uh, Why wouldn't you, uh, Your Excellency, uh, participate in this? He starts off by saying he wouldn't be an advocate of it. Well, why? I presume the answer to that is because every human being has the right to his life. And even the person whose life it is doesn't have the right over his life because you didn't create yourself. So this is a very confusing thing. I think one other level of consideration here has to be Is this a policy that's coming down that he is enforcing, or is the uh, whole mechanism so broke that anybody can just say what they think about a given thing without a kind of coherent policy on the part of the Holy See itself?
0: Yeah. Well, on Monday, the Pontifical Academy for Life responded uh, to the outcry over Polly's statement, saying that quote. Archbishop Paglia reiterates his no towards euthanasia and assisted suicide in full adherence to the magisterium. The statement claimed that Paglia's comments were about a ruling in the Italian constitutional court and that the archbishop gave his opinion that, quote, a legal mediation, but certainly not a moral one, is possible in order to keep assisted suicide a crime in some cases while decriminalizing it under certain conditions. Now, Father Sirico, just for you in the audience, currently, assisted suicide and euthanasia are illegal in Italy.
1: Yes. Your reaction? it's, It's quite striking. It's quite striking. All the archbishop had to do was say, the church's stance is that human life is valuable, even when it's under stress. And that's our position. The politicians can deal with the feasibility of a particular piece of legislation. That's not his role as the president of the Pontifical Council for Life. Uh, this is really a, a grave scandal, and I don't think that the quote-unquote clarification clarifies anything.
0: No, no, it's, it's just more confusing. And again, no. if you're going to say you're, you're weighing in on a ruling by the, the court, well, make it clear to the international audience that is confused what the law in Italy is. And thus far, it's illegal. So it's very vexing and confusing to try to unravel all of this. But I want to move on to a far more important story, I think. At the end of his five-day visit to China, Hong Kong Bishop Stephen Chow announced that he invited the leader of China's Catholic Patriotic Association, that's the government-run church, Archbishop Joseph Lee, to visit Hong Kong. Now, Chow's visit to mainland China is the first by a Hong Kong bishop in nearly three decades. Uh, this gesture by Chow is reportedly aimed at improving strained Vatican Beijing relations. Now, Bishop Chow did not say when Archbishop Lee, who's basically a government apparatchik, would visit Hong Kong, only that he seemed, quote, quite positive about the invitation. Father, last month, Bishop Chow uh, said his visit to Beijing underscored the mission of the Hong Kong Diocese as a bridge church. Is it at this point?
1: Well, no, it's uh, a wholly owned and operated uh, functionary of the Communist Party. I mean, let's remember that that uh, Archbishop Chow's predecessor, Cardinal Zen, was put in jail, mm. uh, even though right. briefly. And has had his passport taken away from him, so that he can't travel. He was allowed to go to Pope Benedict's funeral for five days. He got out of yeah. the country. But uh, no, I, I mean, as to the the, bishop, uh, the, the visit of uh, Archbishop Lee to Hong Kong, I think that's a good thing. I, I think any time somebody who lives in a in a immense prison camp can even begin to see a little bit of freedom, as the Hong Kong. People still retain some semblance of freedom. Uh, That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, no, I I think this is a very sad uh, reality. Do you know if you want to go to mass in China, you have to um, notify the Communist Party on your app to get permission to go into mass? It's checked. If you just go into mass on your own, you can be arrested. Uh, They have retranslated the Bible. Uh, I I think it's a very sad situation, and becoming increasingly so uh, in Hong Kong itself. Yeah. What, what, what do you make of
0: this uh, invitation by Bishop Chao to the head of the Catholic Patriotic Association, um, and that this invitation could somehow improve Vatican-China relations? I mean, the Chinese government already runs the whole show, even in Hong Kong, right. and they're now meddling right. in the appointment of bishops, which we'll get to in a moment. D- d- yes. How will this increase uh, the, the closeness between the Vatican and Beijing any closer, and they'll be a wholly subsidiary, you know, wholly owned subsidiary? <laughs>
1: Right. No, I I suppose to give the best um, interpretation to the Archbishop of Hong Kong's position is it's better to have a conversation with this guy. Who knows? You may be able to convert him, Um, but then he would end up in the same jail cell as Jimmy Lai, uh, which we'll come to talk about. But no, I I don't think there's a lot of hope right now in China, but we have to keep pressing and saying the truth. About things, and and yeah. the truth is that this is a, an authoritarian regime that is petrified of religion, and this isn't anything new in yeah. human history. The church has always found itself, when it will not give its full allegiance to a particular government, it faces persecution from the the dominant authorities.
0: Yeah. Does this seem to be an attempt by China to crack down on the church in Hong Kong? I mean, the, this visit. And um, tell us what the situation is there from the folks you've been talking to.
1: Well, I think what's happening is there, there's a, a kind of closing vice on Hong Kong. You know, the the close down of the demonstrations, the allow, uh, the permission to have very slight formal demonstrations. Uh, in a way, uh, it's it's kind of turning up the heat. The frog is being boiled in the water slowly, because if they were too abrupt, remember that Hong Kong is responsible for uh, a great amount of money uh, that the the Chinese government mm-hmm. in the mainland would depend upon. If they went too abruptly, uh, things would fall apart. So I think what they're trying to do is take a slow approach, and this has to include the church in Hong Kong, because the church in Hong Kong was like the church in many parts of Europe, I and mean, it was a vibrant church responsible for uh, both the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglican Church responsible for the educational system and much of the healthcare system in, um, mm. in Hong Kong, and now it's being closed down very slowly.
0: Hmm. A Catholic priest in China uh, who went missing recently from the Bao Ding diocese uh, has reportedly joined the state-sanctioned church. Now, that priest was taken to an undisclosed location earlier this month, for political re-education after agreeing to join the Catholic Patriotic Association. Now, according to the watchdog group China Aid, about half the clergy from the Baoding diocese in China have joined that state-run church. Why are we not hearing more about this from the Vatican, Father Sirico? There, there, there seems to be no opposition, not even a faint whisper of criticism against it.
1: It seems to me that the Vatican taken the position that as long as they have this secret agreement, they can get more done than if they were to openly criticize it. Uh, that's to give them the best uh, interpretation possible. I think it's a mistake. Okay. I think it's a prudential error to think that you can deal with it. The, the model that we have that's been the most successful hasn't been this osteopolitique, this kind of... Uh, you know, very nuanced, uh, friendly approach, but it's yeah. the approach that Saint John Paul the Great took uh, in being a Pole and going back to Poland is proclaiming the truth, that uh, resulted in the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I, I think, again, the Church just needs to be a truth teller, and the truth is that the Church in China is being persecuted and. It is such a sad betrayal of the people who have suffered the most to not stand up and uh, articulate a defense of their dignity and of their religious rights.
0: Yeah. FATHER, EARLIER THIS MONTH, THE CHINESE GOVERNMENT APPOINTED A NEW BISHOP IN SHANGHAI WITHOUT VATICAN APPROVAL. Right. AND WE'VE SEEN REPORTS ABOUT CHINESE AUTHORITIES DETAINING RELIGIOUS intervi- INDIVIDUALS, KEEPING THEM UNDER SURVEILLANCE, SUBJECTING THEM TO INDOCTRINATION SESSIONS. Uh, CATHOLICS HAVE BEEN FORCED TO JOIN THE PATRIOTIC ASSOCIATION. YOU MENTIONED yes. THE APP WHERE YOU HAVE TO REGISTER TO GO TO CHURCH AND NO ONE UNDER 18 CAN GO TO CHURCH. Does the Vatican have to rescind this Vatican-China deal, given all of what we have seen in the ensuing years? I mean, what's the point of keeping this non-deal in place? What do they get out of uh, it? I,
1: I I don't know. It's a secret deal, so I don't know what they're getting out of it. But I agree with you. Uh, I think that it should be rescinded. I mean, that's my opinion, not, not that anybody in the secretary of state uh, in the Vatican is asking my opinion. Uh, but I think they need to just really go back to the drawing boards. And uh, why would China want to engage in this kind of deal? What are they getting out of it? What is the church getting out of it? Um, You Mm -hmm. know, we're not accustomed to martyrdom. Uh, I suppose it's easy for me to say uh, in that regard, but, you know, I'm very close to a number of the people who are in China, and I know their pain and I know their heroic Testimony to the truth of the faith, and they would rather give up their lives and their freedom than to allow this kind of indignity uh, to continue. Yeah, it's a remarkable,
0: and um, I, I agree with you. I, I don't, I don't understand it, but history will not be kind to this agreement or what it has wrought. No, uh, I want to move no. on to the Acton Institute's powerful documentary about Jimmy Lai, one of those people imprisoned. Uh, it's called "The Hong Konger: Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle." FOR FREEDOM. AND THE MOVIE IS AVAILABLE NOW AT FREE SINCE IT'S PUBLIC RELEASE LAST WEEK, I KNOW IT'S GAINED OVER 600,000 VIEWS uh, ACROSS ALL AVAILABLE LANGUAGES, OVER 4 MILLION HITS ON SOCIAL MEDIA. HOW DID THIS PROJECT COME TO BE, FATHER? WHY DID YOU ALL INITIATE THIS?
1: Well, uh, it really is very personal. I, I know Jimmy Lai. I've known him for over 25 years. I've been in his home in, in Hong Kong in Taiwan. We spent a, a wonderful uh, holiday together in Rome, where we met with uh, now Cardinal Filoni, uh, who was at the Secretary of State's office. We went to Pompeii. And, um, uh, you know, I know this family and he mm-hmm. that is jimmy expected something like this to happen and what is so salient about this story is that this man jimmy lai a billionaire who has homes all over the world could have at any time prior to his arrest have simply left he's a british citizen has a british passport yep. could have left he determined freely and with full awareness to stay and fight for freedom. He said, I can't just make a mess and leave it for other people to clean up. Uh, I'm defending Hmm. the rights of the Chinese people. Uh, He loves China. He loves everything Chinese. He said, I have to be here and give my witness. Um, Just recently, someone who has seen him regularly told me that he is reading the Summa Theologica. Uh, Just the other day, I received a beautiful uh, little uh, sketch of the Virgin Mary. Yep. that uh, Jimmy sent mm-hmm. me from from his jail cell. And that's, you know, I, I think it's a, a real inspiration. This is the thing that the Chinese government is afraid of. People of faith, people who have a moral sense of mission cannot easily mm-hmm. be broken. And I gathered our resources and asked for help from people who were very generous in enabling us to put this film together. We've inter- interviewed... A number of residents of Hong Kong, some of them uh, in blurred uh, and voice uh, manipulated, so they couldn't be recognized. The uh, governor of Hong Kong at the time of the takeover, Lord Patton, uh, has has a whole interview. Uh, Jimmy Lai's uh, godfather, Bill McGurn, calling for Jimmy Lai to receive the Nobel Peace Prize, which would add, and again, Mm -hmm. this is not just for one single person who could have gotten out of this at any time. This is the principle of human dignity, of human freedom, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly and freedom of speech in China. And uh, it is an honor for me to be associated with this project.
0: Yeah. Father, I want to share with people, Jimmy Lai will go on trial in Hong Kong uh, on these national security charges in September. In 2020, he was arrested for allegedly conspiring and colluding with foreign forces to endanger national security under this controversial national security law. Um, I want to play a clip from the film on what this national security law is all about. Watch. Yes. China has passed controversial national security legislation for Hong Kong in response to the pro-democracy protests that started last year. The national security law is a very obvious example of CCP's disrespect for law. The national security law was conceived by people in Beijing as an instrument to bring Hong Kong to heel. It establishes a Chinese law which sets up special courts, special police, to capture almost any activity in violation of that law. The crackdown is total.
1: Sitting here in London, speaking about Hong Kong criticizing the Chinese regime, I'm in daily violation of the national security law. Matter of fact that I'm
0: giving this interview, if
1: I went back to Hong Kong, I could be arrested.
2: If we just surrender, we will lose the rule of law, we will lose the freedom, we will lose everything.
0: Hmm. What is the long-term effect of that national security law on Hong Kong and are there more Jimmy lies in Hong Kong willing to fight for their freedom, Father?
1: Well, the long-term effect of that uh, may be very practical because business people need to understand that if they're doing regular transactions uh, in Hong Kong, they come under this law. So if, mm. for whatever reason, the communists want to arrest them, they can be arrested, tried, and even perhaps extradited to the mainland. Uh, This, an evisceration, as as Jimmy Lai said just in that clip that you showed, uh, it's a denial of the rule of law uh, in Hong Kong. So I I think it's very dangerous. There are other people in various ways speaking out. You know, Jimmy is only one of uh, a number of others uh, who have spoken out, who are in jail uh, as well. I think the hostility directed at Jimmy by the Communist Party is directed him precisely because he's seen as the ringleader, the inspiration, uh, ah. the, the, the band leader of the whole thing. And that's why they're, mm-hmm. they're using him uh, as an example. Uh, pray that, that, you know, they've denied the right of him to have a British lawyer represent him. And I pray that they don't transfer him to the mainland where he will disappear from even what semblance of uh, openness that we have with people who are at least now able to visit him.
0: Uh, I want to play another clip. Now, this one concerns the dilemma the West faces being able to defend Hong Kong while dealing with China. Watch this.
3: A China that does not respect the right of its people will not respect the right of its neighbors. That is the trouble we are facing. Our guys on Wall Street are not helping the cause
0: of freedom.
2: We've certainly allowed our economies to become too enmeshed.
3: Any company who bow down to China just for profit, that will hurt the dignity of
0: American people. Later in the documentary, you point out, Father, that the the West has to stand by the principles of free enterprise and true freedom, even if it costs them something in the marketplace. Is the West willing to do that? And how enmeshed is the Chinese economy with the United States and, and Europe at this point?
1: Well, the enmeshment between the Chinese economy and the rest of the world economy is is incredible. I mean, to, to pull it apart is next to impossible. But I think what we can do, and, and you know, Raymond, I, I've been on your show enough, your your viewers know me well enough to yep. know what a defender of the free economy I am. But let's remember that the free economy is only free under the rule of law. It's not just savage mm. capitalism we're talking about. It's, it's, it's a... Um, a free enterprise that is rooted in the right of contract, private property, and under the governance of law. And when China wants to have a free economy without law, then we have a very dangerous situation. And everyone who engages uh, in enterprise uh, with China, or with Hong Kong even, uh, is risking their own goods and services, which can be confiscated at any time. Uh, and even as has already been pointed out, even their personal freedom, uh, if right. the whim should uh, strike the rulers of the Communist Party. Uh,
0: the, Father, should we sever trade relations with China? You know, Ronald Reagan cut off trade with, with Russia. There was no trade during that Cold War. Uh, should we kill most favored nation status with China at this point, given the egregious human and, and uh, religious rights abuses?
1: I think you have to weigh that question very half, uh, very heavily because, first of all, I'm not sure it's even possible how long it would take to be able to do that because there are contracts in place, there are whole types of reciprocal relationships. Um, but, but let's say we did that. Uh, would this further isolate and disable us from having contact with people so that we can uh, know more of what's going on so as to be able... To protest and place pressure. I don't know. Uh, I think the question is a very delicate one and a very difficult one, especially as yeah. China now begins to make relations with other uh, nations like India, like Brazil, uh, like Venezuela, like you know other nations throughout the world, and their their entrance into the markets in Africa the building of bridges and the um, setting up of loan systems that obligate ports, especially ports. They're buying their way in. And
0: these Western governments are more than happy to allow them to pay to play and the, the the dominance of the Chinese then in those markets where they take over the ports, they take over the train station, because the, the poor countries in Africa and elsewhere can't afford to repay the loans. This is a scheme. The, and and yes. I worry the United States is facilitating all of this and paying for the destruction and,
1: and enslavement of people. This is very dangerous. And if not facilitating, at least allowing it To go on with any kind of competition? Why aren't our businesses uh, competing with Chinese Mm -hmm. businesses, making more uh, lucrative offers uh, to invest in this? Let's let's step back for a moment and remember the desperation on the part of China. They are under a demographic uh, winter that is about to set in in about 10 years, and that's the result of the one-child policy, which they can't compensate for. They can't uh, fix this thing overnight. They have attempted to now. They have abolished the one-child policy. But what does that mean? That means that most young people in China have no cousins. It means that they're, because of the uh, abortion situation in China, that most of the aborted children have been females, because males were considered more lucrative, uh, a better investment. So you have these men without women. Uh, and uh, this is an untenable situation, so they have to expand their markets because, remember, that the human person is really the, the agent of creativity. And when you limit the number of human beings, you're, you're impoverishing yourself. And I think the Chinese are beginning to realize this, so they're expanding very quickly or attempting to expand very quickly. But a number of these nations now, uh, people I've spoken to in Africa and in, recently in Brazil, are growing very wary of what's happening and the kinds of contracts that are in place that would enable the Chinese government to have control of ports and things like that.
0: Yeah. On Monday, the all-party parliamentary group on Hong Kong published a report following a three-month-long inquiry into media freedom in Hong Kong, urging the U.K. government to treat the case of Jimmy Lai, who is a British citizen, as a political priority and to pressure Hong Kong authorities to release him. The report was critical of the British government for making, quote, barely a whisper in response to the arrest of a British citizen on false charges. The report called on the UK government to, quote, speak publicly about Lai's case, apply targeted sanctions against those responsible for Lai's arrest, and provide Lai with consular support and use its seat at the U.N. Human Rights Council to raise his case and those of pro-democracy activists. Do you think there will be more attention brought to the case of Jimmy Lai uh, by the U.K. and the U.N. after the release of this report?
1: I think this report is very helpful in raising the concerns, and and I'm particularly edified by the delineation of very concrete, practical things that can be done uh, in Jimmy Lai's defense. And remember, it's not just Jimmy Lai, that we're defending, but the people of Hong Kong. And I think if uh, some similar path could be taken by other European governments, including now the United States government, which has been relatively silent on it, the Vatican has been relatively silent on it, uh, I think this is the effort behind this film, uh, The Hong Konger, to get people to go on the social media and begin pressuring their politicians. Uh, And especially if, in in October, uh, Jimmy Lai and Cardinal Zen and the others who were arrested receive the Nobel Peace Prize, it will raise global consciousness about what's happening in China that that affects, as I said before, religious liberty, liberty of the press, liberty of assembly, all all of these liberties and the rule of law uh, as a whole.
0: Yeah, it's amazing to me, we talk about democracy and we have to defend democracy in Ukraine, yet our Chinese brothers and sisters go, uh, go, are taken to the slaughter, marched into camps, sent to prisons, and no one raises any objection. I mean, why haven't we heard more public outcry, particularly from the U.K. and the United States, about what, what's <laughs> happening in Hong Kong and Jimmy Lai and other journalists who were imprisoned there?
1: Well, you know, this is the question we've we've asked over and over again uh, during the Cold War. I mean, it took a while for people to understand who Alexander Solzhenitsyn was, who Sharansky was, uh, and these other other. Uh, freedom fighters. Uh, and this is where we're at right now, we're articulating this, we're, we're calling for people to stand in solidarity uh, with the Chinese people being persecuted by the communist government. So you're doing your job, Raymond, by, by airing these kinds of things repeatedly on your show. And the EWTN network throughout the world has the opportunity to go on their social media and call for the freedom of the freedom fighters uh, in Hong Kong. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, we, we have been—this uh, has been, you know, I, I just think it's a neglected uh, part of the world, not unlike Africa. It is. We just ignore what's yes. happening in these countries. And, you know, I, I uh, we have to use these platforms to bring people's attention to these human and religious right abuses, no matter where they are, particularly when people in the church are being uh, singled out for their faith. You know, I, I uh, like you, Father, I've received this beautiful um, I- illustration of the crucifixion by Jimmy Lye, which I'll, I'll put up on the screen, um, that he sent me out of the blue, I guess because of the, you know, continued reportage. But it's important for us to, to do this, and I have that in my office as a reminder of the silent voices that we have to give voice to and be the voice for. Yes. Who do you hope sees this documentary, The Hong Kong?
1: I, I, I would love for people in the Vatican to see it uh, and to take it seriously. I would love for people in mainland China to see it, to see the love. I mean, you know, this is an argument not against the Chinese people. They're in. They're resilient people, they're creative people. Uh, China's experiment, experiment with human and economic freedom over the last 30 years has been nothing short of astounding. We only wish more of that. Uh, It would be wonderful if we had a global economy where we're interdependent, where the division of labor is diverse. I I believe that uh, trade with other people breaks down prejudices. And it may very well be that part of the silence is just that people don't know, or maybe they have innate prejudices uh, against Asian people. I think these are the kinds of things that can be broken down so that we can have um, a a mutual Prosperity that we can enrich each other. I hope the people of of China will see this documentary.
0: Yeah, well, I I hope everybody takes a peek at it. It's called "The Hong Konger: Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom," from executive producer Father Robert Sirico and the Acton Institute. It's available now at freejimmyli.com. You should take a look at it. Father Sirico, thank you for being here. And God bless Jimmy Lai and all those imprisoned for their faith and and for their um, impulse to freedom. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Rome journalist Diane Montagna reports this week that significant procedural changes are underway at the Synod of Bishops, and who can participate? Now, greater lay involvement is apparently on the way for the October meeting, including the right to vote on doctrine and practice. But what will that change mean? And there's a document in the works from the dicastery for the laity, family and life directed at divorced and remarried Catholics. So I thought we'd bring the papal posse in, editor-in-chief of the thecatholicthing.org, Robert Royal, and canon lawyer and priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray, all here in New York to help us make sense of it all. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. I want to start with the procedural changes I mentioned a moment ago. Um, Now, this will govern who can not only participate but vote at this Synod of Bishops or alleged Synod of Bishops. Earlier this week, Diane Montagna reported that 10 consecrated clerics will be replaced by laymen and women auditors will be replaced by 70 non-bishops to be chosen by Pope Francis. Here's an excerpt of the document from the Secretary General of the Senate. It says, first modification, the 10 clerics belonging to the institutes of consecrated life elected by the superiors general are no longer present. They have been replaced by five women religious and five men religious belonging to institutes of consecrated life. As members, they have the right to vote. Second modification, there are no longer auditors. Instead, an additional 70 non-bishop members have been added who represent various groupings of the faithful of the people of God. Uh, uh, Father Jerry, I want to start with you about, uh, again, these people are going to be chosen by the Pope, the 70 non, uh, apparently voting members now, they're non-auditors. This was supposed to be a synod of bishops. But it seems the bishops are being replaced.
3: Well, uh, the Vatican has done things now which means that the Synod of Bishops no longer exists. It's now the Synod of Bishops plus other baptized people. And the reason I say that is because in the past the Synod of Bishops consisted only of bishops and then a few members of religious orders, but those members had to be ordained priests. So what happened? Now the Pope is saying lay people, deacons, men and women religious, Uh, priests even, can now all be equal members of the synod. Uh, This is a profound revolution, even though the people in charge are denying. It is a revolution. The synod of bishops started—first, the idea was at Vatican II, Paul VI codified it in law. And what the goal was, bishops would cooperate with the pope in discussing pastoral matters and then challenges that the church faces in the modern world, and then would propose solutions and teachings. Uh, That was all part of the pastoral care, the pastors taking care of the flock. Now, the flock and the pastors are on the same level. And believe me, uh, this is no longer going to be something where bishops acting as pastors in the church are acting. Now, they're just another voting block within this group. I predict this is going to produce some very serious problems in the life of the church.
0: Bob, according to the document, uh, this this modification of a constitution that Pope Francis himself released, uh, Pope Francis will choose these 70 auditors from among a list of 140. Fifty percent are required to be women, and young people will be prominently featured. Uh, your reaction to this, setting quotas, and um, what what will this achieve? What will this accomplish?
2: Well, what you just cited, I find to be very worrisome, because we know that this is the kind of political language that is used in the secular world as a whole, that somehow there has to be um, this uh, gender uh, equality in representation, and we have to listen to young people. And, uh, you know, it's worth hearing young people talk. but well, Young people are young people, and they aren't going to know very much about the kind of things that a synod like this has to deal with. And then there's the, the further problem that... Um, We've got these 70, and the pope can't possibly know uh, how to pick out of 140 people which 70. So he's going to have to be presented with a, a list of the live possibilities and kind of explained why certain people can. And this allows this, this kind of thing that we've seen in the past with some of the polls about the traditional Latin mass and whatnot, that, that persons close to the Holy Father can kind of shape what he's going to be doing. But my, my major worry here, as father also said, is that this is, this is turning out to be something like a secular political representation. And, again, the organizers deny this. Um, they keep saying that this b- continues to have the basic character of a synod of bishops. But in point of fact, what they're doing is they're, they're, they're just—it's almost magical thinking, that bishops plus lay people or other people somehow is a synod of bishops still. That's not the case. And it's it's clear that it's being set up this way to produce a certain outcome.
0: Yeah, Father, that's what I was going to ask you. Uh, uh, Is this the organizer's way of stacking the participants in order to reach a predetermined outcome? And canonically speaking, how can lay participants and non-bishops vote in a synod? Uh,
3: They can only vote because the Pope changed the law. Uh, But I think it's a mistaken change because. Uh, what Pope Paul VI did, what the Second Vatican Council proposed, is actually how the church has been run from the start. The pastors guide the flock, not the other way around. The pastors should listen to the flock, but when it comes time to have a meeting uh, to discuss things and to, you know, make doctrinal decisions, pastoral decisions, it's up to the pastors. Now, now, with these new roles, essentially, uh, the pope is going to be appointing 70 non-bishops. He also has the freedom to appoint more of his own. And that can be more lay people. The lay people, do we know if these people are even going to know theology, the Bible, the history of the church? It's presumed that all the bishops have been well-trained and, you know, believe in the creed, go to church on Sunday, all that. Uh, some of the lay people participate in the synod were specifically chosen because they were, you know, non-practicing Catholics. And we were supposed to listen to them. Mm-hmm. It's also worth noting, uh, Raymond, that in the past, if you were a cardinal in charge of a Roman congregation of dicastery, you were automatically part of the synod. That's no longer the case. So now, what we have is selective people are going to be telling all the rest of the church what they need to do, even though they may be simply, you know, a, a relatively uneducated layman who has no idea, really, of the theology of the church.
0: Yeah, no. Th- this is. I-, I have to tell you, when I read this, we weren't going to do this segment. When I read this, I thought we have to respond this week and take a deep dive into this because it is critically important. Um, how do these changes? And I'll ask both of you this: How do these changes comport with Pope Francis's previous assertion? And he he said it for many years that this synod is not a parliament. Bob, I'll let you start.
2: Yeah, Well, the fact that you even have to de- deny this is, it shows that there there is a, a danger or a presumption that that is what's, what's going to be happening. And when you put out a message like saying, we need to have 50 percent men, 50 percent women, young people, et cetera, the, these kind of secular categories, what we really want are the, the people who are the best, as we do in the secular world as, as well. We want the people who are the best representatives of thinking, of practice, of of, of uh, pastoral activity, uh, uh, in every possible sector of what the church uh, actually is. And instead, we kind of see it drifting in that direction. And the denial itself shows you that they know that some people feel that this is becoming something very much like, if not a parliament. The beginning or an opening of a kind of a democratic process, that obviously cannot happen in the church, and especially cannot happen yeah. at a time like this, when we have so much dissent within the church, that we're going to see a, a battle royal, if I can put it that way, uh, inside the synod hall. Yeah. And that, that's not going to be good for anyone.
0: Well, but, Father Jerry, it might be uh, uh, permissible if the pope decrees that it's permissible. I mean, that's what I keep hearing from people. They're like, wait a minute. So you don't trust Pope Francis to pick the 70 people who can vote, the 70 laymen? And I'll throw that question to you. Sure. Well, I'm sure the pope's going to
3: make the best choice that possible that he s- considers, so I can't question that. But I can certainly say, why do we have lay people here, even in the first place, Holy Father? It's not the role of lay people to replace bishops in guiding the church. If you want to have a council of lay people to advise you, to advise the rest of us about what the church should do, start that kind of council. But don't put them in a meeting of bishops and say, now you have an equal vote to bishops and you get to do what you want. Um, now, look, I, the Pope's going to be choosing from a list, including from, let's say, the German hierarchy, is going to propose some candidates. I know what's going to happen here. Uh, Check me back next October. Some layperson is going to get up and say, we need to ordain women. We need to allow contraception. We need to have uh, divorced and remarried people receiving communion. We need to welcome homosexual couples into the church and bless their unions. This is all going to be said either in the Senate hall or out in front of the microphones on the sidewalk. And then people are going to say, oh, by the way, I was invited here by the pope, and I think the pope, you know, I'm going to speak truth to power. This is setting up. Uh, basically Mm -hmm. a revolutionary argument, which is basically not what the church needs and should never happen.
0: Well, and look, we already have uh, progressive bishops and cardinals already going out there and trying to set the table for this synod uh, about female ordination and relaxing the church teaching on certain sexual practices. So what we're really considering here, what we're about to embark on this fall is truly a democratic process of voting up or down Catholic doctrine and Catholic process. This is more like American Idol or the Anglican General Synod. Am I wrong on that? Is that where this is tending?
2: Well, I mean, Raymond, I, I think you're right about the general tendencies. I don't know if it'll go quite that far. Don't forget, this is only the first of two month long. Uh, synods that are going to take place, this one in 2023 and then another one next year. And it will be very interesting to see what happens here, because, as we know from covering previous synods, there are other pockets in the church um, that begin to perceive what's happening as these radical voices start to re- emerge. And if they organize, they can k- kind of moderate things to a, to a certain degree. Mm. But there, there's something quite unusual going on here. and. You can see it even in the artwork that has been presented as the synod, that all you know people are walking together. Look, walking together is a good idea. But the the two main cardinals who are leading the synod, Cardinal Holerich from Luxembourg, um, has said that the church's teaching on homosexuality has now been disproven by science, which is, I think is an absurdity. Uh, Cardinal Gretsch um, has said that, you know, what what can it hurt to talk to people who are uh, same-sex uh, attracted? What can it hurt to talk to people who are divorced and remarried? Well, it can hurt a lot, because it sets up an expectation. And we have seen this in the church since Vatican II, that it's it's not as if these conversations simply go nowhere. Once expectations are set up and the, the the great example is Humani Vitae when there was an expectation that Paul VI was going to, was going to overturn the teaching the traditional teaching of centuries on contraception that the world went crazy and I think we can anticipate that there will be multiple explosions uh, if not quite to that I- extent but multiple yeah. explosions as Father just outlined on a variety of subjects.
0: But Father, before I leave this topic, uh, it seems to me the organizers learned the lesson of the Family Synod, which is. Don't let any naysayers or anyone who will vouch for the traditional teaching of the church in the door. Keep them outside of the meeting hall. And that's the best way to proceed together and walk together with only like-minded people. Yes. Well, look, that
3: was revealed. Uh, All the synod surveys from out the world uh, that went to Rome, they were never published. We never knew what the input is. All we came out was with this continental document. Now we're waiting for the instrumentum laboris. Um, you know, they're controlling the process here in a way that goes against the history and tradition of the church. Now, of course, with lay people voting, this is basically going to become, as Bob is saying, some kind of a democratic uh, exercise with an expectation, if you don't get it now, we're going to keep pushing, you'll get it later. Where, in the Catholic mm. Church, the bishops represent Christ, the high priest, the shepherd, the one who leads the flock. Those are the ones who should be giving their advice to the Pope and together working to promote Catholicism. Instead, now what we have is kind of a revolution. Everybody's equal. They cite baptismal dignity. Mm -hmm. Everybody's baptized, true, but not everybody's ordained. Ordination has big. If I were a bishop, I'll just throw this in, I would feel slighted by the fact that the bishop's advice is not considered sufficient. Now we have to have lay people who inevitably can attract all the attention.
0: Hmm. We will leave this here, but I'll bet it's not the last conversation we have about it. And, by the way, that instrumentum laboris, the working document, is late. They haven't delivered it on time, so we'll keep our eye on that as well. I want to move on to another big story this week. Uh, Cardinal Kevin Farrell, who is the prefect of the dicastery for laity, family, and life, he revealed that he and his staff are preparing a document to address the status of civilly divorced and remarried Catholics who do not have annulments. This at the request of Pope Francis himself. Cardinal Farrell made the announcement at an April 22 meeting in Rome. He said the dicastery is also working on the preparation of a text that will specifically concern, as you wished, your holiness, men and women who, having a failed marriage behind them, live in new unions. Father Jerry, what sort of document do you see coming from the dicastery, and what is a new union? Well,
3: the cardinal's language choice is is, uh, very unfortunate. To speak of a failed marriage is a sociological view. Uh, The Bible view and the doctrinal view is, what God has joined, man must not separate. Uh, We believe in the indissolubility of marriage. So if there's a divorce, that's regrettable. It's sad. But the couple is still married, unless the decree of nullity shows otherwise. So to talk about failed marriage as a sociological reality that we have to somehow adjust our doctrine on, this makes me very, very nervous. Uh, The Catholic teaching about thou shalt not commit adultery, coming from the Old Testament, of course, the Ten Commandments, that is not subject to human monkey business. We can't change it. If that document in any way insinuates that second marriages of people who are already in a valid marriage can be admitted, then we're basically saying adultery doesn't really matter. THAT WOULD BE A DISASTER.
0: BOB, WOULDN'T THE CHURCH JUST BE CAPITULATING HERE uh, TO THE CULTURE, TO THE WORLD? Uh, SHOULD ILLICIT UNIONS BE REGULARIZED uh, OUTSIDE OF AN ANNULMENT? I MEAN, AGAIN, THIS SOUNDS LIKE THE CHURCH BEING RUN BY POPULAR OPINION OR BY THOSE WHO COULDN'T MAKE THE MARRIAGE WORK OR, YOU KNOW, COULDN'T STAY IN THEIR MARRIAGES.
2: Well, look, in in one way, you can applaud the fact that the Holy Father wants to look at the vast number of people who are are divorced and remarried who are Catholic. I mean, this is a very big problem in the church. There's there's no doubt about that. But what I fear is going to happen here is, we all know that, in the the, uh, encyclical Amoris Laetitia, the famous footnote 351, Mm -hmm. kind of toyed with the idea that there might be certain cases in which, because of particular circumstances, people who had not received an annulment could still receive communion. I think that this is going to be a much more explicit uh, expression of what the Holy Father um, skirted. And we know that later he wrote a letter to the Argentinian bishops and told them that um, that, that they, that in fact, they could allow people who were in these irregular unions to receive communion. But I think it's, it seems to me that this is going to be inevitable. Why even write a document like this, unless you're going to overturn what is long longstanding teaching? If you can't get an annulment that has been, you know, carefully looked at by uh, you know, a proper tribunal these days. There must be some real impediment there to you're not getting the annulment. And either at that and that point, I'm, I don't want to be cruel about this, but I think at that point you have to decide whether you're a Catholic, or whether you're a person who prefers an irregular union. And I, and it's a hard choice. We we all know people who are in these circumstances, but we have our, our Lord's own words that that a man leaving his wife or a woman leaving her husband uh, is committing adultery, as Father says. So we, that term is in play where there is going to be a, a so-called second union. And I don't think there's any getting around. I don't care how many scripture scholars, theologians you bring in to try to massage the, those passages. Those are, are those have to be regarded as Jesus's own words and, and regulating these situations. Yeah.
0: OK, uh, moving on, and I, I wish we had more time for this topic because I, I have to get this in. Uh, an Anglican liturgy was permitted on April 18th. At the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome. Now, this is the Pope's Cathedral. This is the first church, really, of the Pope. Uh, An Anglican communion service was conducted in violation of Vatican rules. Um, My my question is, Father Jerry, what happened here, and why would an Anglican delegation have been permitted to hold a service like this at St. John Lateran in the first place?
3: Well, a number of things. It was a mistake for permission to be given, because it violated the ecumenical rules. The Anglicans have places where they can have their liturgy in their own churches in Rome. That's where they should have gone. It was a provocation by the part of the Anglicans to try to even ask to celebrate their liturgy in the pope's own basilica. They were obviously trying to make a point that they consider themselves equal to the Catholics, so, therefore, we want to use a Catholic Church. Objectively speaking, Mm -hmm. The Anglican ministers are not ordained priests, even though they claim such, because that's already been determined. Pope Leo XIII, the Apostolic issued a document saying that Anglican orders are absolutely null and utterly void. So, uh, the ceremony had the appearance of a Catholic mass. Uh, the bishop was wearing a mitre, a chasuble. They were using. Would look like a missile chalice, the whole thing. So any Catholic mm-hmm. stumbling or walking in, not stumbling, but just walking in as a normal practice yeah. to go to church and saw this would think there was a mass going on. So it really was an outrage. Mm. It's been, thank God, the uh, the, the cathedral uh, there ex- expressed its regrets and recognized it was canonically irregular, but it shouldn't happen in the first place. There has to be more safeguards in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. The the. The, the leader here in charge, the archpriest at the Basilica, Bob, um, uh, was this misguided ecumenism, uh, ignorance? What is this here?
2: You know, it's it's really hard to know what happened because they, this group of, of Anglicans actually met with the Holy Father the same day. So you could imagine them saying, We just met with the Holy Father and we'd like to come up there and say Mass and maybe you know, it was taken as, as, uh, as, you know, some kind of permission that they had to, to do this. If, mm. I, if I were the, the Holy Father and I were, the, were that, uh, the, the, that uh, person in the basilica, I think I would say to them, look, you guys want to be in our churches. You call yourself Anglo-Catholic. Why don't you become Catholic?
0: Right. Yeah. Father Jerry, a, a dicastery for promoting Christian unity official has said that the liturgy was performed in a roped-off area away from members of the public. Does that lessen the significance of what happened here? And would this service qualify as a desecration of the space, since, as you mentioned a moment ago, Anglican Eucharist is not considered valid?
3: Okay. Yeah. The fact that it was roped off, unless the whole church was closed so no Catholics would come in there and be confused, no, that's that's basically uh, not a very significant observation. Uh, it was a desecration. I wouldn't say that because the Ecumenical Directory does permit under other circumstances, the use of a Catholic church for the episcopal uh, or the Anglican Mm -hmm. liturgical worship. So, since it is permitted, it's not there for uh, sacrilege or desecration. Uh, But certainly, you know, we just don't talk about the letter of the law. We talk about also, what is the mission of having a cathedral? It's not for the celebration of non-Catholic Protestant liturgy, which is not a mass, even though. The Anglo-Catholic bishop there tried to give the appearance that it was, and may, he may even believe that, but we should not give into that confusion. No, this was not a mass. He's not a priest, and it was a mistake. Mm.
0: Another ecumenical event is planned for May 14th at the Lateran Basilica, when the Coptic Orthodox Patriarch Thadros will celebrate an Orthodox liturgy. Now, the Vatican does recognize Orthodox sacraments as valid, so I imagine that wouldn't be. A concern, um, uh, Bob. Your thoughts here? I mean, this is another case where you have a visiting group of, of clergy, you know, not part of the Roman Church, but at least this one is, is more in communion with Rome.
2: Yeah, and and uh, you know, there, as Father says, there are, are cases in which, as I understand what is going on in that case, is um, they can ask to use a Catholic church if their own Christian churches. Uh, are, are, are not available or inadequate, and I, they're expecting like 3,000 people to show up. So it's obvious that they're going to need more space than the very small uh, uh, church that they have in Rome. So, you know, this, this is the kind of thing that I, I think builds a little bit of, of goodwill. It would be great if these things led mm-hmm. to, you know, ultimate uh, overcoming of schisms, but it's a kind of a courtesy that's been extended.
0: Yeah, you know, it would have been great if they'd used the Anglican moment as a, as a time to have that conversation, as, Father, uh, as Bob said. Uh, I, I think it would have been a great opening. You want to come here? We've got, all, we've got all the goods. Everything's here. Come on in. The water's fine. Gentlemen, we will leave it there, and we'll continue to watch this synod as it evolves. For more commentary by Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray, visit thecatholicthing.org and the first in my Turnabout Tales series, The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison, which makes a wonderful Mother's Day gift as well. It really is the story of a mother who saved a son and saw the possibilities where others didn't. It's available at bookstores everywhere and online, and I have an incredible stop coming up on the book tour. I'll be at the Barnes & Noble in Brentwood, Tennessee, at the Cool Springs Barnes & Noble on Saturday, May 6th. All the details are Raymond Arroyo. And of course, you can get the book from the EWTN catalog as well. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.